So celebrating the 12th of Tammuz, the, again, anniversary, the 94th anniversary of when the previous Rebbe was released from Soviet prison in 1927. So this story really goes a little bit back. In 19... In 1918, 1917 at first, there was a revolution in the, what was then called the Russian Empire. And um, the Tsar was deposed, making Russia a um, democracy. They had all of one election. They didn't get very far. In, and then a few months later, um, the communists, led by Vladimir Lenin, took control of the country. And there was a civil war that lasted for about three years, um, fought throughout the entire country between the communists and the anti-communists. We, in the United States, um, sent troops to fight as well, uh, one of our first interventions in another country, and um, not very successfully. And uh, anyway, it ended up with the um, communists taking control of the Soviet, of what had been the Russian Empire, and be, ma- turning it into what became the Soviet Union. Now, the Soviet Union, officially, their goal of the communists was to destroy capitalism. They were going to destroy businesses, personal ownership. They went after aristocrats, after nobles, barons that owned land, land, the landed class. They went after um, wealthy business people. Let's not involve politics. <laughs> it's, uh, so they, they went after business people. Um, they tortured people to find their money. Um, they killed many. And um, they were, took over, nationalized everything, nationalized all land, all businesses, and forced everybody to work. Everyone was now workers, worker, working for the government. Along with that, however, there was also a big cultural change. There was a, the communists were generally atheists, as Karl Marx himself had been, but they were generally atheists. They officially, communism, on the books at least, was fully democratic. They still had, still had elections, believe it or not, in the Soviet Union. There was only one party, but they still had elections. And um, it was officially democratic. There was officially freedom of speech and freedom of movement, um, which there hadn't been in the Tsarist Russia. And there was officially total freedom of religion. In reality, though, it turned very quickly into a totalitarian state. Now, among the various things that they went after, they went after culture, cultural symbols, academia. Many academics were killed, arrested. They also went after religion. But it happened very slowly. It didn't happen all in one day. They didn't turn it into a totalitarian state overnight. It was something that happened very slowly that really took about two decades to really um, fully turn from what had been somewhat of a free country to a total totalitarian state. It was a gradual process. In that process, and part of the process of destroying religion, within that process was also a process of destroying Judaism. There had been, at the time, there were about three million Jews in 1918 in the Soviet Union. And most of them were religious Jews, organized in what was called then a kehila, organized Jewish communities. And you're either Jewish or Christian. There was no secular at the time. And so, and there were organized Jewish communities. And they worked to destroy Jewish religion, Judaism, the Jewish communities. Now, they gave Jews a lot of freedom. Before that, Jews were not able to go to universities. Jews were living in a pale of settlement. They were very limited where they were able to live. Um, they were very limited in which professions they could go into in Tsarist Russia. The communists gave them freedoms. In fact, many of the leading communists themselves were Jewish. But they also, they worked to destroy Judaism. Among their first... Now, when they worked to destroy Judaism, there was... A, the Jew, Jewish communists, and there was a large number of Jewish communists, created their own Jewish section of the Communist Party. And it was called in Russian the Yevesekskia. And they were the Jewish section. Yebrea is Jews, and um, so it was the Jewish section of the Communist Party. 
and this Yevisexia were very ruthlessly anti-religious. And they went ruthlessly more than any other religion to go after and destroy Judaism in the Soviet Union. Among the different things that they did was, firstly, they worked on closing the Jewish schools. Every community, Jewish community, had a network of Jewish schools. They worked on closing Jewish schools to try to force Jewish children to go to public schools, closing Jewish community schools and Jewish private schools. They went further to try to close the yeshivas, to try to close the schools they, uh, the, the, of higher learning, so that there shouldn't be any rabbis, there shouldn't be any leaders of the next generation. They worked to close shuls. They would repossess shuls in order to be used for um, social halls and to be used as gyms and other things that say we need it for other purposes. So they would repossess shuls. They worked to close um, mikvahs. The mikvah that um, every community had, they would claim, they would have send the health department in, say that it was unhealthy, um, work to close mikvahs. Officially, there was freedom of religion. They worked to shut down shechita, ritual slaughter. They, um, by declaring it to be unsanitary, and they would shut down rituals, Jewish kosher slaughterhouses. And so in this way, they shut down Jewish printing houses that were printing books. And so in this way, they gradually worked to, um, they gradually worked to um, destroy Judaism. They started a newspaper, which they called Emes, which is truth in Hebrew or in Yiddish. Um, the Yiddish translation of Pravda, right? Pravda was the communist paper, truth. Right, that was their propaganda paper, to go after where they, you know, where they spread anti-religious propaganda again with the point uh, goal of destroying Jewish life, religious life in the Soviet Union. Yes. Was it only the Jewish life that they were trying to destroy? What about Christianity? So they were moving against all religion. They were moving against all religion, but there was a particular Jewish section of the Communist Party that was focused on destroying Judaism, and they were much more ruthless when it came to going after Judaism. Why were they? These were Jews who had rejected their Judaism, and they believed that Judaism was old-fashioned, bad. Uh, they were atheists, right? They believed that religion is opium for the masses. And in the communist utopia, you don't need religion. And so they felt it as Jews, their responsibility to destroy Judaism. Um, and they, they created a culture of um, violence. Uh, the Rebbe, I'll talk about it in a moment, writes about a lot of it in his diary. They created a culture of people who prided themselves, vicious culture of people who prided themselves in their violence, in their um, meanness, in their ability, in their power, ability to cause harm to other people. Um, and so the previous Rebbe, his father, Reb Shalom Ber, um, had fled during World War I from the small town that they had come from in, on the border between Russia and Belarus called Lubavitch. And they had moved out that Lubavitch was on the front lines at a certain point. They moved away from the front lines to southern Russia to a town um, in the very south of Russia called Rostov. And the previous, the, his father, the Reb Shalom Ber, died in 1920. And so his son, Reb Yosef Yitzchak, became, Rebbe became the leader of the Chabad movement during this challenging time towards the end of the Civil War. And almost immediately, um, the local Yevisexia, the local Jewish section in Rostov, went after the Rebbe and his community. He had a large yeshiva that had been in the town of Lubavitch and had moved to Rostov. And so they made a public trial against the yeshiva, claiming um, this public trial, claiming that the yeshiva was run illegally, wasn't run properly, various claims against the yeshiva, to force it to be closed down. It was teaching um, bad things, poisoning the children's mind, the students' minds. They had this big public trial. They did a lot of, in the early days, they were still trying to change people's minds. They had a lot of these public trials to try to get people to, even throughout the Soviet Union, they had public trials, um, to try to convince, you know, it was a way of them showing everyone how terrible various things were. They had a public trial after which they closed down the yeshiva. 
They also, they wanted to um, break the Rebbe himself. He was a, lot, a very respected Jewish leader, if not the most respected Jewish leader in the Soviet Union at the time. And so, um, and just a few weeks before his daughter's wedding, they went to his home, they arrested him. For briefly, for interrogation, they seized all of his property, everything that he owned, his bank accounts, everything, and um, calling, saying that he was what they called a counter-revolutionary. That's a, um, only a you know, totalitarian term. Um, so they, they seized all his things just weeks before his daughter's wedding, and um, he wasn't, they made a very simple, they didn't have any money even to make a wedding, but he took, they took everything be- that he owned, everything that he personally owned. Um, they took away from him. And they thought it would break him. But he didn't break to the contrary, when his yeshiva was closed, he ordered the students to be scattered to various places and reopened the yeshiva in various other cities. When schools were being closed, he sent his students and his followers to various communities to reopen new schools. At the time, religious school wasn't yet illegal. Open new schools. He, when they shut down ritual slaughterhouses, he opened new ones. They shut down shuls, he had people open new ones. Not only that, he sent messengers to various places to build Judaism. And what he did is he had his followers bring copies of the Soviet constitution that allowed for freedom of religion and allowed for freedom of speech. And they would show it to local officials. And in the communist constitution, it said that you're allowed to give your children religious education. And he would have them show it to the local officials. uh, Communication wasn't that great back then. Local officials, not knowing any better, would often help his followers to build Jewish schools in various places. He needed funding. Most wealthy people at the time lost most of their wealth. If they hit it, they didn't want to do anything, but they needed funding for these private schools. It was hard to find funding. So what they did was, he arranged, at the time also many Jews had lost their source of income. Many Jews had been business people or small farm owners and had lost their sources of income. The Soviets at the time were building collective farms. He was very concerned about these collective farms, that they would use them to indoctrinate people He wasn't concerned about communism. He was concerned about anti-Judaism, anti-religion. And so he went to the communist officials and said, we're going to build Jewish collective farms. What a great idea. They accepted it, and they started building Jewish collective farms. Um, And then he reached out to the what was called then the Joint Distribution Committee, which was an American organization created in World War I um, with U.S. funding um, that would bring, that would give... Um, money to Jews in need. It was made for Jewish refugees during World War I, but it continued, and he asked them to help fund these farms, these collective far- Jewish collective farms where they would be able to practice Judaism. He then went further, and he asked the joint to fund the um, Jewish schools as well, these Jewish schools that were semi legal, um, mostly working in the shadows. They weren't officially working with permits, which would be too difficult, but working in the shadows. He asked the joint to fund those as well, which they did. And, crea- and he, crea- he built this massive network of kind of a counterbalance to the Jewish section of the Communist Party, the Yevaseksia, to try to hold Judaism alive, to keep Judaism going. So for many communists, for Jewish communists, they were very upset about it. Um, Particularly the local Jewish officials in Rostov were very upset. In, In 1924, the Rebbe traveled to Moscow where together with a group of prominent rabbis from, the so- from across the Soviet Union, they established a central Jewish organization to keep Jewish life alive across the Soviet Union. At the time, these things were still legal, because this was still as it was gradually changing. 
and so and um, with so it should be a more organized thing. They created, built this organization um, with branches all across the Soviet Union. On his return to Rostov, which is in southern Russia, quite a distance from Moscow, he was notified on his way back, someone met him at a station on the way, that the plan was as soon as he arrived in Rostov, they were going to arrest him. So he was to leave, not to end up in Rostov. So he turned around and he moved to Leningrad or St. Petersburg, which they had changed, the communists had changed the name to Leningrad, right? They named all the cities after themselves. So he moved to St. Petersburg, which was a big city, and he felt from a big city, he didn't want to be in Moscow, but he felt from a big city like St. Petersburg, he'd be able to better lead this Jewish um, organization across the Soviet Union um, and He'll blend better, Rostov was a smaller city, he'll blend better in the city and they won't bother him as much as well. So he then moved to, so he, he was in Leningrad which became the center of the Jewish activities. Jewish activities continued um, and uh, somewhat to the um, anger um, and displeasure of the Soviet authorities, particularly the Jewish ones that were very upset about his activities and what often what he was doing was he developed a relationship with various non-Jewish communist leaders, including going to the president of Russia, Kalinin, um, who was a president of Russia who had some warm warmth towards the Jewish community, for whatever reason, and others. And he went around the Jewish communists, the non-Jews, who were more supportive of Jewish life in Russia. Um, they went so far that in more remote places like Georgia or Uzbekistan, the Rebbe's emissaries, the people that he had sent, his representatives, would go and then actually got, they got the governments to pay for schools and to pay for new shuls and to, they got the government to support. It was further away and communication wasn't that great. And so um, they warned the Rebbe a couple times to stop you know, his activities or to... Um, they knew what he was doing. Um, they had eyes everywhere. Um, and so much so that in March of 1927, it was Purim, and the Rebbe gave, as he always did, he had a big shul in Leningrad, and he had a big, um, he, he would give, he would have big gatherings where he would speak publicly, he spoke publicly. And in that speech, as he always would, he spoke about the Soviet constitution and how it is legal to send your children to Jewish schools and how it's legal to go to synagogue, and it's legal to keep Shabbos, and um, the Soviet Constitution allows practice of religion, and um, anybody who tells you otherwise, challenge them. They're, they're wrong. They're, what they're doing is unconstitutional. And as he was saying that, he then said that here in the crowd, there were uh, members of the predecessor of the KGB, they went through a couple different names over the years because there were purges, right? They destroyed one organization and created new ones. Then it was called the GPU in the 1920s. So he said, there are GPU members here in the crowd listening to everything we're saying. And I'm not saying anything illegal. I never, he never advocated for the overthrow of the Soviet government or anything against the Soviet government. Never advocated for capitalism, just for Jewish religion. And they're here in the crowd, and they know I know who they are. He knew who they were. He said, I see you. I know you're here in the crowd. Um, and uh, you should know we're not afraid of you. We're going to continue to build Judaism. They weren't happy about that, to say the least, about that public speech, which was printed and published and spread across the country. Um, but then there was another thing that happened that really left, um, that really kind of brought things to an end. So... The Jewish communists came up with a plan to, um, to help break Judaism, something that secularists in other countries had previously done and had tried unsuccessfully to do in Tsarist Russia already, and that was to create a Jewish rabbinical conference. This had been tried earlier in other places somewhat successfully. Create a rabbinical conference, send their own rabbis to the conference, make sure their own rabbis are a majority of the conference, and then the rabbinical conference is going to make all these rabbinic rulings that you don't have to 
that you that public education is fine, that um, synagogue weekly synagogue or daily synagogue services aren't required anymore, that mikvahs are unhealthy and the like, to make all these essentially cancel much of Judaism on their own, have the rabbis do it. And then once the rabbis do it, all the communities need to follow, and they'll have to, they'll tell the communities, you have to follow the rabbinical conference. That was their plan. So the previous Rebbe was very aware of what they were doing. In fact, he was invited to the conference. He was the most prominent rabbi in the Soviet Union at the time. And so he made it very, very clear that this conference is an anti-Judaism conference and no legitimate rabbi should take part in the conference. He went so far to send letters to every Jewish community in the Soviet Union and warning that no rabbi should take, even if they threaten you, do not take part in this conference. It's an anti-Jewish conference. Do not lend it legitimacy. What they try to do is they try to bring real rabbis to come, and then that makes the whole thing legitimate, right? So that was their goal. So they were very upset at the Rebbe for derailing their conference. And so at that point, they decided to uh, take a major step to arrest the Rebbe, though he was a prominent international figure. Um, they may not have realized how prominent, but the local... Um, the local um, the Jewish section of the Communist Party, Evasexia, um, and the local GPU, which was the predecessor of the KGB, decided to arrest the Rebbe um, and give him the option that either, either to support the conference or he will be killed. At the time, um, they were killing people regularly. In fact, the Rebbe himself writes about his time in prison that every night they would hear all night long, they would hear shots of people being killed. Uh, it was, they were killing dozens, not hundreds of people every single night. It was, that's, that's what they did. And so um, it was a Tuesday night, um, and the 15th of the month of Sivan, Hebrew month of Sivan, um, the, it was in about May, I forget the exact date, 1927. And the previous Rebbe had, um, he, he, he would see, um, he would do what's called yichidus. He would see personal, have personal um, visits. People would be able to get per private visits with him to ask him questions, advice, um, and the like. And he did that till late at night, following which he prayed the, off the evening services. And then at midnight, he sat down, because he had been working till midnight, he sat down to eat dinner. Ten minutes after midnight, there's a knock on the door. Bang on the door. They don't wait for the door to be answered, they open the door, and there are some officers of this GPU, the former, the predecessor of the KGB, along with a number of soldiers, um, burst into his house, screaming, um, where is Schneerson? Who is Schneerson? And so the previous Rebbe realized straight away who they are. He had a few encounters with these people already. And he knew that what they try to do is intimidate you. But as soon as you stand up to bullies, they back down. So he said, I'm sorry, I don't, everyone here is Schneerson. I don't know who you're looking for, but if you walk into someone's house unannounced, you probably know who you're coming for. And besides, I'm in the middle of dinner. Why are you screaming at me? So, and he, they, he, they, so, and so they told him that he's under arrest. Um, they asked him to search his house. Um, he said, you're welcome to do whatever you want. I can't stop you. You outnumber me. But please let me eat dinner in peace. He remained very calm as they tried to threaten him. And um, time and again, and he writes, he actually wrote a diary. He kept a diary from when he was young. He wrote a diary of his entire time in prison with all the details. Um, how he felt, you know, in various stages. And... Um, it was a very, um, and so they tried to frighten him, to frighten his family. And um, they went from room to room. They allowed him to continue eating dinner. Um, now, the two officers that came in, he actually knew both of them. 
He knew both of them. One was a fellow, he doesn't give us their first names. One was a fellow by the name of Lulav and another one by the name of Nachmanson. They were their last names. Um, he knew their families because both of them, their fathers, had been followers, his followers. So he knew who they were. Um, and um, he, they, they continuously tried to threaten him. They um, picked up a gun at him, said, I don't get threatened by guns. They don't phase me. Uh, they tried to threaten him in various ways. Um, they asked, they went to his daughters. They asked his daughter, who was the Rebbe's wife later, um, what party do you belong to? She said, I'm non, non-partisan. I don't belong to any party. I'm, we're just religious Jews. He said, why do you believe in God? She said, you didn't come here to have a philosophical discussion with us. You asked what party we're from, we answered. But I'm not going to tell you any more than that. And so they all responded in a kind of calm way, uh, unfazed. And so after about an hour in his house, searching his house, they told the Rebbe to prepare his things and that he's under arrest. The Rebbe said, before I leave, I want, I'm not leaving until you give me one guarantee, that you'll allow me every day to wear my talus and tefillin put on my tefillin every single day in prison when I'm in prison. They said, you're just going for a few hours. He said, no, I want to make sure when I'm there, he knew he wasn't going for a few hours. I want you to allow me to put on talis and tefillin every day, and I'm taking Jewish books with me. I want you to allow me to have Jewish books. So they said, we give you our word, you could have put on talis and tefillin every day. And so um, then he actually mentioned something very interesting in his diary. He said at that point, his mother, his father had passed away some years earlier, his mother, who was an older woman, woke up. She had been sleeping throughout this all. She woke up and she came into the room and saw them about to arrest her son. He was an only child too. Um, About to arrest her son. And she started to scream at them. And he said, you know, the, the officials actually had mentioned earlier to the soldiers who were doing the search, don't go into the mother's room, don't wake up the mother. They had said that earlier. And now when the mother started screaming, the official that was the, this Jewish official son of one of his followers um, turned to the Rebbe and said, can you please calm your mother down? So he went into the other room with her and with his family where they were able to talk. He gave them he was able to give them instructions what they should do. Um, he told them whose homes to go to because he knew they would go to homes of some of his closest aides and advisors, uh, his closest aides, um, to find incriminating evidence of where they should go to destroy all the evidence. And he gave them various other instructions. But he writes in his diary that he noticed that this um, horrible individual who throughout his arrest continues to threaten him and to ridicule him, and to treat him, and uh, you know, and to treat him horribly. And this is a man who, by his own admission, had killed countless people, you know, himself. Um, when he saw his older mother, his elderly mother, crying, that her son's going to prison, he suddenly saw kind of a streak of humanity within him, and it reminded him of the teachings of Chassidus that teach that every person has a spark of goodness in them, even the worst people. They still have a spark. All you, they need to do is enlighten, light up those, that spark. He has a spark of goodness. He says he grew up, this man, Nachmanson, must have grown up in a Hasidic household. And he knew the Rebetzin, the, the, the um, wife of the Rebbe. Was, you know, she was the matriarch of the Chabad movement you know, when he was growing up, before the previous Rebbe, when his parents, when his father had been Rebbe. She was the matriarch of the Hasidic movement. He still had a respect for her. And you see that people still have this spark within them. So anyway, they took him to a um, prison that at the time was called Spalernka, which was the um, prison for the highest, um, the worst offenders at the time. He was taken, it's still there today, I don't think it's a prison anymore, it's become a museum, but um, they took him to this prison. And so, um, Throughout the, so then he describes how he comes to the prison. He describes in very great detail. I'm not going to go into all the details. Um, he describes his feelings in the car as he drove the car, his feelings um, 
as he arrived in the prison, um, all the various things they did to try to frighten him. They had all these things, you know, kind of everyone would be, all the guards would be armed to the teeth um, just to frighten them. He was brought into the prison, handed over to another guard, who was then, who tells him, takes him down into a building, and there's a long corridor, about 150 feet long. At the end of the corridor, there's an open room. And the corridor is lit by, barely lit, with only a handful of candles. And every few feet, there's a soldier armed to the teeth. Clearly, it was designed to instill fear. And so, um, they go down, and so he's told, go down to the corridor to the end, and then you'll get to a room where they'll ask you questions. And in that room, everybody answers all the questions they're asked. That's what they tell him. They're obviously trying to get him afraid, right? They're trying to instill fear in him. And so he goes down this corridor. This is how he describes it. And right before he gets to the room, he was lost in thought. He was thinking about his family, thinking about what's going to happen. And as he's lost in thought, he was walking slowly. He said he wasn't in a rush. He wasn't rushing anywhere. So he's walking very slowly. And he gets towards the end of the corridor. And there's another corridor, a brightly lit corridor, um, to his right. And so he turns, he says he doesn't, he's not sure if he did it deliberately or undeliberately. It wasn't a smart thing to do. You're in a you know, high security prison to go the wrong way. But he turns and he finds himself suddenly, he realizes he's in a brightly lit corridor with benches along the corridor with lots of various offices. He's in a kind of office section of this prison. And so he continues walking a little bit. He realizes he went the wrong way. Probably he's in trouble now. He's already in trouble because he's in prison. He's a high, high target prisoner. So he's in trouble now because he went the wrong way. He's tired. It's late at night, right? He was arrested. They came in at 12 a.m. They were there for over an hour. By now it's close to three, 2 a.m. Um, or later. So he says, sits down on a bench. He thinks, you know, they're going to ask me questions. I should already go through what the answers to the possible questions are going to ask me in my mind now. So he sits down on the bench and he thinks through his questions and he thinks through again. Spend some time thinking. And then he sees a couple people walk out of an office. They notice him. He's sitting there. And then they, um, they leave. But then one of them comes back to see what he's doing there. He clearly wasn't supposed to be there, sits down next to him. The previous Rebbe pulls out a cigarette. This is when everyone smoked, right? Before cigarettes were unhealthy. This is 1927. Pulls out a cigarette. The other fellow pulls out a cigarette too, offers him a light. They start smoking together. They start chatting. Where are you from? He says, I'm from a town um, called Labavitch. And the man says, oh, I'm from a town right, ne- right nearby. I wasn't Jewish. They get into this whole conversation. They're chatting for a while. And then the fellow asks him, how did you get here? He says, oh, I was coming down this dark corridor and somehow I ended up here. Um, I was supposed to go to a room. So he said, which corridor? Point to where you came from. And he points to the direction that he had come from. He says, oh, that means you're a high-level prisoner. That's the corridor for the high, high-level prisoners. You must have committed some very serious crimes. He said, no, honestly, I never did anything wrong. I do everything legal. I've never done anything illegal before. And so they continue. Anyway, over this time, an hour, two hours have passed. And so the fellow directs him to go back to the room that he's supposed to go to. Anyway, he's late. What he didn't know at the time, but they only found out much later, was that his error really saved his life. They had a plan. They were going to. What they often did is they took people, they questioned them, then they took them out straight away to be killed. By the time he was done with his interrogation, it was already morning. They didn't do executions during the day for whatever reason. It was already too late. It saved his life. Um, So he ends up in this room um, where... He's told to sit down where there's a, someone that asks him questions with a questionnaire. They ask him, what's your name? They give him the questionnaire. Sorry, they give him a questionnaire to, to, to fill out. 
he says, I don't know what you want me to fill out. Whoever brought me here knows exactly who I am and exactly why they brought me here. Why do you need me to fill anything out? He had decided to be uncooperative. He wasn't going to cooperate because he realized they were working to intimidate him. By being uncooperative, he's not going to allow them to intimidate him. And so um, then, um, uh, so they, so, so the woman says, okay, the secretary says, okay, I'll fill it out for you. What's your name? He gives his name, where he was born, his date of birth. Um, then he says, what do you do for a living? What's your occupation? He said, I teach chassidus. Chassidus is the understanding of God and God's presence in our world. She says, how can I write that down? Said, I don't tell you to write it down. You don't have to write it. You just ask me a question. I answer the question. So then she, as she's asking him questions, he turns to her, he says, am I allowed to smoke? Can I pull out a cigarette in here? So just then the, some senior officials walked in and um, they walked over to, they hear his question, they walk over to his table, they say, yes, you can pull out a cigarette. What's his, they want to see what he was, they want to interrogate him. They ask, what are you, what's his answer? He says, she says, he's not answering any of the questions. I don't know what to do. So apparently they were getting worried that it was getting late. They said, just leave it. Whatever he answered is fine. Just keep going. <coughs> so he turns to these senior officials and he said, uh, and he says to them, um, I was promised, I said, he tells them, is it true that the GPU officials, when they make commitments, they keep their word? They say, yes. He says, I was promised by the GPU officials that arrested me tonight that I would be allowed to, to put on my talus and fillin and pray. I want to be allowed right now to put on my talus and fillin and pray. They said, no, you can't do it now. But we'll, don't worry, we'll let you do it. He says, no, I want to do it now. It was already, it was summertime. So in, in the Soviet Union, that far north, it gets light very early. He was worried he wouldn't be able to do it later. So they said, no, you can't. So he continues. They take him then to another, they take him to another room where they ask him further questions. And they give him a number. Every prisoner was known by a number, part of their dehumanizing people. Um, and they take, him, um, they take him then to the area of the prison where he was going to be put. Um, they tell him usually um, people brought for execution should be in placed in solitary confinement, but we're out of we're, we have so many people being executed we don't have enough spots for uh, solitary cells. So you're going to be put with three other people that are also slated for execution. So um, and then they have the guard. This is how they did it. As he's leading him to his cell, starts uh, as he's leading him to the section of the prison where he's supposed to go to, tells him about how many people he's killed and how he kills them and how they wither in pain, giving them, you know, the, the idea is to frighten them, right? And so um, the Rebbe turns to the guard and says, am I allowed? Can we stop? I'd like to put on my talus and fill and I'd like to pray. The guard says, no, you can't. So then they keep going. They arrive then at the area. It was in section six. They arrive at section six. He's handed over to the guard from that section. They go to the head of the section to be registered. He asked the head of the section, am I allowed to pray? He said, no, you're not allowed to. The, the head of the section then, um, so then they take out his things from his bag. They go through his bag. They take out money that he has in his bag, which they put kind of in a deposit safe. They take out all his Jewish books and they take out his tefillin. And so he says, I was promised I'm going to be allowed to pray with my tefillin. You can't take away my tefillin. So he's holding his tefillin. And as they're doing the search, he begins to wrap, begin wrapping his with his tefillin when they turn away. And they turn around. They see he's wrapping the tefillin. The fellow starts pulling the tefillin off him, saying, take it off. So he was afraid they were going to tear the tefillin. So he... Um, so he takes it off. He's still holding them, though. They take away his... He had a few other pairs of tefillin. He used to put on four pairs every day. And he had um, his books they took away. And then the guard starts leading him to his cell. There's a couple staircases to go up to go to his cell. 
and uh, it's a long walk. He's walking very slowly, he's tired, and he's not in any rush anywhere. So he's walking slowly, the guard is way ahead of him, and so he sees the guards way ahead of him, he begins to wrap his tefillin. He puts on his tefillin, his hand tefillin, his head tefillin, he's in the middle of, he says the Shema, he's in the middle of praying, the guard turns around and sees that he has tefillin on. The guard gets upset, the guard pushed him, and he falls down a flight of stairs. And he was badly wounded, bleeding, um, with his tefillin on. The guard pulls off his tefillin, takes it away. He says, you can't take away my tefillin. I was promised that I would be able to put on tefillin. So he was given, then he's brought to his cell. He describes his cell. He was given a... Um, paper with the rights of prisoners. They gave that to every prisoner. So he read the rights and he was going to insist on his rights. Among the rights of prisoner is that any prisoner has the right to ask for pen and paper at any time. And prisoners are allowed to send messengers to any official in the prison at any time. So he asks for pen and paper and he addresses to the director of the prison to the director of, the, um, in, of interrogations, to his own interrogator, to everyone he could think of. I was, he sends a message, I was promised I can put on tefillin, I want to put on tefillin, please let me put on tefillin. And he sends that message to everyone. And then they brought him, then it was time to eat, they brought food for everyone, he declared, he said, I'm on a hunger strike, I'm not going to eat or drink until you bring me my tefillin. This was Wednesday morning. He went for interrogation later that day. They interrogated him. And um, they wanted him to agree to this conference, was one thing they wanted. He tells his interrogators that he's not going to listen to them. He's not going to pay attention to them. Um, He tells his interrogators, they ask him, do you know where you are? He says, yes, I know where I am. There are certain places that don't have most doors in a Jewish home we put a mezuzah on some places we don't put mezuzahs on like bathrooms, toilets we don't put mezuzah on, I'm in a place like that where it doesn't need a mezuzah it's an unholy place he tells his interrogators many times, at one point they tell him, you're a prisoner you have to listen to us he tells them, you're prisoners too you can't do what you want you can't leave here right now even if you wanted to you'd be arrested if you walked out now You're a prisoner just like me. You're told what to do just like me. You're no better than me. And so using those kind of... And he he didn't give in to his prisoner... To his... um, He didn't give in to his captors whatsoever. Refused to listen to them. Um, At one point, they told him he should take off his tzitzis. He wore tzitzis. They told him to take off his tzitzis. He said, if you take off my tzitzis, I'm going to... He already was on a hunger strike... I'm not going to speak anymore. You won't hear a word from me. They left him then. They stopped threatening him. So, meanwhile, um, while he had been in, while he was in prison, meanwhile, his family immediately, as we had said, sent messengers to um, um, to the entire communion in Leningrad, in the city at the time, while he had been arrested. In fact. While they were still doing a search in his house, his daughter actually, who Chaya Moshko later became the Rebetzin, and the Rebbe were then dating. They were not yet engaged, but they were getting engaged. Um, and so they were actually had been out on a date that night. And they came back to the house, and they saw the cars in front. They realized what was happening. The Rebetzin went to went inside to her house to see what she could do. The Rebbe went, he knew who all the close aides were. He went around to all their homes to warn them to destroy various papers and other things. Um, And so by the time they had left, by the time they had taken the Rebbe, um, there was already a crowd outside the house because word had spread very quickly. Um, By the next morning, um, the Rebbe's followers, thousands of them gathered in the house. Um, and so they made immediately a committee. Um, in fact, they made two committees, one in Leningrad, St. Petersburg, to deal with the local authorities to try to release the Rebbe, 
and another committee in Moscow to try to deal with authorities over there to try to release the Rebbe. Um, they also created a committee of rabbis from across the Soviet Union, and not just rabbis, of Jewish leaders, including many communist Jewish leaders who respected the Rebbe to try to work towards his release. And many, there were Jews that weren't that anti-religious that respected the Rebbe that were going to work towards his release as well. But they decided they did not want to um, ask for help from outside the Soviet Union because if they were to ask for help from outside the Soviet Union, that would only make it worse. They would accuse them of being supported by capitalists from enemies of the Soviet Union. So they turned to, they tried turning to the local GPU um, officials and um, what they found very quickly is that the local GPU officials, the ones that had arrested the Rebbe, they were not interested in freeing him whatsoever. They knew exactly what they were doing. There wasn't much they could do. So they turned back to Moscow um, because they knew that it hadn't been okayed. The Rebbe's arrest had not been okayed by the national government. And they turned to a woman called Ekaterina Peshkova. She was the head of the Soviet, the Red Cross of the Soviet Union. She, that was the only legal human rights organization in the Soviet Union. She was married to a high-ranking communist official, so she was allowed to provide help. But she was a well, not Jewish, but well-meaning woman who did try to help and helped many people, many prisoners in the Soviet Union. And so she got out. She tried to use her connections to try to have the Rebbe released. Um, they went to other important officials, communist officials whom they knew. They reached out to the president, Kalinin, um, the president of Russia, um, to try to use his influence to free the Rebbe. And so within the communist government, there were many factions that were somewhat upset about the Rebbe's arrest. Um, they started a letter-writing campaign. They had hundreds of thousands of Jews across the Soviet Union write letters to both the communist leadership in Leningrad and the national leadership to Kalinin to the president um, to make it clear that this was not a local issue but it was a national issue, it was an affront to the entire Jewish community because the Rebbe was the most respected Jewish leader at the time and um, the most well-known Jewish leader in the Soviet Union and so um, there were a lot of leaders in the Russian government that didn't feel it was worth getting so many people upset and making such a ruckus um, to ar and arrest the previous Rebbe. It wasn't worth it. It was causing too many problems. Now, though the Rebbe's followers didn't contact the people outside the Soviet Union, word got out very, very, very quickly. Word spread across the Soviet Union very quickly, and so by extension, even though communication in and out of the Soviet Union was pretty weak, word got out very quickly. It was in the front page of all the newspapers, the front page of the New York Times. It was a big deal. The previous Rebbe was one of the most prominent people that had been arrested by the communists at that point, one of the most well-known uh, well individuals, famous people, um, definitely within the Jewish community. And so um, the most famous Jew, for sure, that had been arrested at that, up to that point. And so um, it was in all newspapers across Europe, here in the United States. And um, it was a big deal. And almost immediately, the Soviet Union started getting a lot of backlash with ambassadors, Soviet ambassadors around the world, writing back that people are upset about it. Governments are turning to them for an explanation as to what's going on. Um, it quickly became a national issue that required the leadership of the Soviet Union to get involved. They hadn't originally been involved in this. Um, particularly um, in Germany, this is before the Nazis, 1927, Germany, the Weimar Republic was still a democratic country. Um, in Germany then, at the time, had a German Socialist Party, which was very closely affiliated with the communists in the, in the Soviet Union. The head of the German Socialist par Party was a Jew by the name of Dr. Oskar Kahn. Dr. Oskar Kahn was a doctor who had previously saved Lenin's life when he was in Germany and he had been sick. Um, and an avowed communist. But he was approached 
by both the chief Orthodox rabbi of Germany, Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer, and um, by the um, chief reform rabbi, Rabbi Leo Beck of Germany, um, that as a Jew, it's his responsibility to ensure that the Rebbe is safe. Jewish leader, prominent Jewish leader. How the, can you, the communists do this? And so he immediately reached out to um, the um, German foreign minister, um, not a non-Jew, as well as the Soviet ambassador to Berlin, um, who he was very close with, because they were very connected to the Soviet Union, who made it very clear to the Soviet Union that this was not okay and it was going to harm in their international relations. At the time, Soviet Union didn't have a lot of relations. We didn't have relations with them here in the United States. We were at the time negotiating with them, talking to them. But here as well, here in the United States, there are a number of prominent Jews that immediately returned to, um, to the Senate leadership, um, to the president at the time, President Hoover, um, to the um, Senate leadership, the um, the uh, chair of the Foreign Relations Committee was Senator, Senator Bora, and um, they immediately made it clear also to the Soviet Union that they would immediately cut off all discussions if the Rebbe was not released. And so international pressure was very, very strong very quickly. And um, as a result, they agreed not to, they, they were told from above, that from the leadership in Moscow, they were not to execute the Rebbe. Um, and they would instead send him to 10 years in Siberian labor camp, which was realistically a death sentence. Um, that was not acceptable, not to... Um, not to um, Ekaterina Peshkova of the Red Cross, who was working very hard to free the Rebbe. She had a personal relationship with him previously. Not to foreign um, ambassadors who were, being, who were very firm. And so they finally agreed to send the Rebbe to three years exile in a city a couple months, a couple hours train ride from Moscow called Kostroma. So um, 19 days after he had been taken into prison, he was notified that he would be released and he would have to travel to Kostroma. But the local officials were very upset. They had lost their chance to execute the Rebbe. And so they um, decided to get him back and they, they um, scheduled his train to go on Shabbos. He told them, he said, I am not traveling on Shabbos. You can keep me here. I'm not going on Chavez. They said, you'll stay here and you'll die. Too bad. I'm not going on Chavez. So they were forced. They knew they couldn't keep him there. So they were forced to um, allow him to... Uh, they were forced to allow him to, um, to travel on Sunday, the next day, the 3rd of Tammuz. And um, so he was allowed to go home for six hours. When he came home... His um, house was packed with throngs and throngs of people. Um, at the time, Leningrad had a very, very large Jewish community, and he was the most prominent rabbi and the Jewish leader at the time. And um, he went home, spent some time at home, and then went back to the train station. And the train station, um, they had set up barricades that people should not be able to see him off at the train station. didn't work. There were tens of thousands of people that came to see him off at the train station. Um, people had been, it had really, in, um, it had really um, built Jewish passion across the Soviet Union. Even Jews that weren't religious were concerned. So w word got out very quickly of when the Rebbe's train was leaving and where it was leaving from. There were tens of thousands of people there. The um, Soviet officials were overwhelmed. They, they gave in. And so the Rebbe stood on the platform of the train and addressed the crowd. And there he addressed the crowd, and he said the same things he had said previously. He said, firstly, he said, God, uh, the, uh, God's, we are in exile. God sent us into exile. But only our bodies are in exile. Nobody can control our souls. People can control our bodies, but they can never control our souls. And then he reminded the people that according to the Soviet constitution, it is legal to teach, send your children to Jewish schools. 
it's legal to pray, it's legal to practice ritual slaughter and go to an old Jewish activity, go to synagogue. These are all legal under the Soviet Constitution. Anyone who tells you otherwise um, is going against the Constitution, is doing something unconstitutional. And he makes this statement as he's just released from prison in front of tens of thousands of people um, as he's on his way to exile. Um, so he was sent to this town called Kastrama. Um, he was allowed to take family and some aides along. Um, he spent all of nine days over there because um, they wanted the um, pressure continued to have him released entirely. And so finally on the 12th of Tammuz, 1927, the previous Rebbe was released um, and allowed to go back home. He only had one problem. His problem was that the head of the, um, the GPU in Leningrad was very upset that they had gone over his head and forced him to release the Rebbe. And he said, it's a matter of time before we're going to find an excuse to arrest him again. And this time, we're not going to wait. We're going to shoot him straight away. They told that to the Rebbe's people. They want to be very clear. They didn't want him to come back. So... He didn't go to Leningrad. Instead, he went to a suburb of Moscow because he knew that he was not allowed to step foot in Leningrad. Um, he went to a suburb of Moscow where he spent a couple months. But he also knew that the Jewish section of the Soviet Union and the GPU, the, this predecessor, the secret police that controlled everyone, was after him and was going to come back after him sooner or later. Um, and they knew that he needed to leave the Soviet Union. So they sent word to Jewish communities outside the Soviet Union. And so two Jewish communities um, worked very hard to get the Rebbe out. The Jewish community in Germany and in Latvia. So the Jewish community in Frankfurt um, appointed the previous Rebbe as the chief rabbi of Frankfurt. They offered him the position of Chief Rabbi of Frankfurt, really just to get him out of the Soviet Union. The Jewish community in Riga, Latvia, which was a very large Jewish community as well, offered the Rebbe the job of Chief Rabbi of Riga. Now, they then turned to this Dr. Oskar Kahn, Jewish communist leader in Germany, communism was still legal, and um, asked him to ensure the previous Rebbe can come to Frankfurt. He went to, he traveled to Moscow, with the letter appointing the Rebbe as the, inviting the Rebbe to become chief rabbi of Frankfurt and asked them to let the Rebbe out so that he could become chief rabbi of Frankfurt. It's an affront to the Jewish community of Germany if they don't let the Rebbe out. Um, rabbi Mordechai Dubin, who was a parliamentarian in Riga, Jewish parliamentarian, um, came, to, um, came to Moscow also with the letter offering the, him to be the chief rabbi of Riga. And so they went to officials. They said, we need a, you need to let him out. They went to the foreign ministry, which had the power to let people leave the Soviet Union. You need to let him out, leave the Soviet Union, or it will be an offense to the Jewish communities. In fact, they worked against each other. The, ra the ra rabbi Dubin from Riga um, said, uh, if you let him go to Frankfurt, then the community of Riga will never forgive you. And Dr. Kahn said, if you let him go to Riga, the community from Frankfurt will never forgive you. And they tried pressuring them. It didn't work. They were not going to let the Rebbe leave. They were afraid that from outside the Soviet Union, the Rebbe would organize to organize, have more freedom to organize Jews in the Soviet Union. They didn't want to let him leave. At the time, though, um, the Soviet Union didn't have any relation, relations with any Eastern European countries. Most Eastern European countries were threatened by the Soviet Union. They, they felt them as a threat. They didn't have any relations with the Soviet Union. Latvia was going to open relations with the Soviet Union. Latvia had the, the Soviets had, were missing one vote in the Latvian parliament in order to establish relations with the Soviet Union. The um, Rabbi Dubin, who was a parliamentarian, said, if you want my vote, you need to let the Rebbe out. 
you want me to vote to establish relations, you need to let the Rebbe out. So with that, they needed the relations, they wanted to establish relations with Eastern Europe, and so they let the Rebbe leave the Soviet Union, and in um, October 1927, the Rebbe was allowed to leave with his family. The Rebbe insisted he's not going to leave without his family, and he insisted he's not going to leave without his books. So they let him leave with his family and had take a, six aides with him, and um, he when he, he wanted to leave with his family, he, they, he put the names of his family down. He also put his future son-in-law, who would later become the Rebbe. They said, future son-in-law, that's not family. He said, yeah, son-in-law's like this. You can't find anywhere else. So he took him with. And um, then they said, you can't leave without your... To leave, to leave with your books, you need the approval of the cult, Ministry of Culture. So they sent an expert in antique books, a Jewish expert, to... And he took one look at the books. It was an old library, valuable library. He said, no way this is leaving Russia. The Rebbe said, without my books, I'm not going. So they got the ministry to send another non-Jewish individual who didn't care so much, and he signed off on it. So the Rebbe left the Soviet Union. He left the Soviet Union. As soon as he left the Soviet Union, he established an organization to support the Soviet Union, to support Soviet Jews. And he continued to do so for the rest of his life. Um, and Jew Jewish life continued in the Soviet Union. Things got worse, much worse over time. Um, but Jewish life continued throughout. Um, there were continuous underground communities, synagogues, schools, um, throughout the entire time until the Soviet Union collapsed um, in, the, um, in, in the early 1990s. And so... Um, they continued, the Rebbe, after his passing, his son-in-law, the, the, the Rebbe, um, continued his work um, in the Soviet Union, sending people back and forth, communicating with people in the Soviet Union, um, sending money there. Um, and they, had, they developed a whole network of ways to keep things going in the Soviet Union. Um, and continued, Jewish life continued in the Soviet Union throughout, um, despite him having left. He did continuously tell all of his... Um, the Rebbe would always tell his captors throughout the time he was in prison that you enjoy your power now because your time will come as well. You will all die, you will all be punished for what you've done, and then you will regret it all. And indeed that happened. In the 19, late 1930s, Stalin um, had a series of purges where he essentially destroyed the entire first generation of communists. Every communist official from the 1920s was killed including the entire, every member of the, of the Jewish section of the Communist Party was killed. Um, all the officials that had arrested the Rebbe, every member of this GPU was killed. The entire organization disbanded. Um, and it already then went by other names. But they, they, they were all, all these people were killed and later purges, every single one of them. And so exactly as the Rebbe had predicted. So it's a fascinating story, amazing story. But what does it mean for us? So when the previous Rebbe was released from prison, he wrote a letter to the Jewish community worldwide. And he wrote as follows, he wrote, God did not only free me from prison, God freed every single Jew from prison. Why? Because the Rebbe was a Jewish leader. It wasn't him that was imprisoned as an individual. It was him representing Judaism in the Soviet Union. Judaism that was under siege. The fact that we could keep Judaism alive under siege. So it was really every Jew in the Soviet Union that was being, um, that was threatened and that God released. But it was more than that. The Rebbe explained something very powerful. In the old country, it was hard to be Jewish. There was a lot of persecution for being Jewish. But it was easy to follow Judaism. Judaism wasn't that difficult. Being Jewish was hard. Um, it was a lot of persecution, but Judaism was easy. Everyone was religious. Everybody kept God's commandments. The Soviets made it very difficult to practice Judaism. They made it very, very hard. They made it free. Later, they threw the Jews out of the universities, but originally they allowed Jews into universities. They allowed Jews to go wherever they wanted. They made it, they gave a lot of freedom to Jews, but they made it very hard to practice Judaism. The previous Rebbe said, we're not going to give in. We're prepared to sacrifice. Even when it's costly. 
even when it's difficult, even when their lives were in danger, and many thousands of Jews were killed for practicing Judaism, if not tens of thousands, um, but we're going to sacrifice for Judaism. But the truth is that while sacrificing your life, being under threat of arrest, being under threat of being sent to a labor camp or being executed was something that was unique to the Soviet Union. Thankfully, we don't have that today. But this need to sacrifice to practice Judaism is something that's true really everywhere in modern times. Why? Because we live in a very open world where it's very easy not to practice Judaism. A person, any person today that practices Judaism needs to make certain sacrifices. Whether it's keeping Shabbos, you can't do what you want, go where you want. Whether it's keeping kosher, right? Whether it's whatever it may be, right? A person, every person today needs to, whether it's just keeping Yom Kippur, telling your boss, I don't work on Yom Kippur. Right? Whatever it is, every Jew today needs to make a certain level sacrifices. And so what the Rebbe taught us, really, was we need to be prepared to sacrifice for Judaism. If you're not prepared to sacrifice for Judaism, your Judaism has a, is of little value. It's of course of value. It's always of value. But it's not that meaningful. What's really meaningful is when you are prepared to sacrifice. It's going to cost. It's going to be difficult. I'm going to do it anyway. It's going to be challenging. I'm going to do it anyway. It's maybe challenging to walk down the street with a yarmulke. You look Jewish. Do it anyway. There are a lot of things today we're not threatened in the sense that we're in danger, we're going to be killed, hopefully. Uh, we don't face threats from, commun from, from the Soviet Union, from communists. We don't face threats of Nazism. We don't face those kind of threats today. But we do face a lot of challenges to follow a God, God's commandments to us. And so we need to sacrifice. Every person, every Jew that's going to keep any parts of Judaism needs to make some level sacrifice. And we need to be prepared to do it even when it's difficult, even when we need to sacrifice, even when it's hard. And that's really what the, Rebbe, what the previous Rebbe taught us. And so his day of release is not just a day for him, but a day for all of Israel, for all Jews, where we celebrate that he was freed and he was able to continue life in the Soviet Union, but really he then came to the United States, um, helped build Judaism in the United States. We did a class on that um, about a year ago about how the Rebbe changed Judaism here. But it was the Rebbe taught us the need to sacrifice and be prepared to sacrifice for who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. So I apologize for going over time, um, but I think.